Hi, and welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I'm your host, Steve Bissell. The goal of this podcast is to demystify therapy, what can happen in therapy, and the wide array of conversations you can have in therapy. I also talk to guests about therapy, their experience with therapy, and how psychology is present in many places in their lives. I also share personal stories. So please join me on this journey about therapy. Hi, and welcome to episode 82 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy, or the premiere episode of season seven. My name is Steve Bissell. If you haven't listened to episode 81 yet, please do so. Rachel Fletcher was the episode of the year, just a great interview about recovery, and I really enjoyed talking about that. You can also go back to listen to the 12 Days of Christmas plus two, which were great messages from people who have been on my podcast. But episode 82 will be with Jake Nichols and Pat Rice. We're going to talk about Jake Nichols first because Jake Nichols is a pharmacist in long-term recovery. He's just written a book called Unfit for Recovery, which has just been released. He's been working in the addiction field for over 12 years and as an advocate and resource for evidence-based treatment approaches and stigma reduction. He facilitates patient and parent support groups across the area in Massachusetts and also just a great human being. I really liked him talking to him prior to this interview. So I hope the interview goes well. And Pat Rice is going to be on this interview. Pat Rice has been on, what, four episodes before this. And Pat Rice is the one who recommended Jake and they've known each other for a while and wonder if they're going to talk about that relationship. Jake Nichols' book, again, is Unfit for Recovery, just released. So can't wait to talk about that. And here is the interview. Well, hi, and welcome to the premiere episode of season seven. I can't believe I got the season seven of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. I am Steve Bisson. This is also YouTube channel episode 19. I know you're going to recognize one of the faces, if he moves his finger, of course. <laughs> Pat Rice. One of the things that I want to say about Pat Rice, most download episode ever. I think you heard it a couple of weeks ago on my podcast. Pat, you're, you're number one on several seasons, but you're ultimately number wow. one for the last seven seasons. So there's two ways of thinking about it. Congratulations. And there's a lot of pressure on you depending on how you want to look at it. It's always a balance. I experienced neither, actually. It's just nice to know that some of the stuff that we're all interested in, others are as well. Yeah. That's, that's a gratifying thing. It's very gratifying. And as usual, Pat brings in a wonderful guest. I don't know Jake Nichols. I know of Jake Nichols based on some LinkedIn stuff and everything else. But Jake Nichols is someone that I want to meet because he released a book about three days ago. And I read part of it. I'm not going to lie. I didn't read the whole thing. I'm just honest. But I really enjoyed what I've read so far. So there's going to be a lot of questions based on that. But Jake Nichols, welcome to Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Truly an honor to be here and look forward to the conversation. It's going to be a mindful conversation, but we also got to keep Pat on track. So you need to help me on this one. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> That's true, true enough. <laughs> um, there's a couple of standard questions I ask on this podcast. And the first one is, who are you? And tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's a loaded question. Where do I start with that one? So I, I'm a pharmacist. I have been working directly in the substance use disorder field for about 12 years, which also correlates to the amount of time I've been in long-term recovery. I had a 15-year history of substance use that really kicked off when I was in pharmacy school and culminated in 2010 with a somewhat typical story of you know legal issues, financial issues, marital issues, and and everything that comes with that. And, and like many, that's how I found my way into this field. I've been very lucky and very blessed to be able to work in this field and 
share my experiences with others that are struggling with this or with families that are struggling with this. Now, what do you do in the field? I know you said you're a pharmacist, but I'm assuming that's not what you're talking about when you say you work in the field. Correct. Yeah. So I've been I've been involved in many roles. It started out working with pharma companies on the medical side, doing a lot of educational work and really guiding clinicians on what I like to call the evidence-based treatment side of, of addiction treatment and you know, proper use of medications and ancillary services, social services, and and so forth. Based on my openness with my experience too, and and part of what I did very early on reluctantly at first was went out and I started sharing my own personal experiences and, and kind of tying that into the education around treatment, you know, weaving in again, my experiences with the treatment system and so forth. And that opened more opportunities than I could ever have possibly imagined. And in 2017, I was able to form my own consulting group where since that time, I've, I've just I've been, again, very lucky, very blessed. I'll say that many times during the conversation, but to be involved in in many different aspects of addiction treatment from working with correction systems to doing expert witness testimony you know had my own clinic for a period of time outpatient treatment program you know i've worked with digital companies that have apps for addiction support so a lot of different things which is part of what makes it interesting but also helps to to continue to bolster my own recovery well I appreciate that. Number one, number two, the apps. I mean, there's a lot of them. There's a few of them that I'm questioning and some of them are really good. So happy that someone with experience is finally consulting on those. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Pat, what do you know about Jake, about this beginning of the process is consulting his 15 years of recovery and stuff like that? Well, he's, he's on my speed dial. I have a question about, and it's been very useful. You took my number out. It was uh, you're, replaced, you're there too. my friend. It's, You've been replaced. Damn. It's a long it's a long list. <laughs> if we need all the help we can get in this in this field. But it's uh, uh he came across my desk, I forget how, and in and he reminded me of this. And I forgot him when we were talking about the book and and, and all of this, uh one night over dinner, as I recall, and and I, I said, Geez, how do we meet? And he said, You sought me out. It was true. Which is pretty rare. It is, it's, I forget how, you know, it's through the grapevine you hear about someone. And he said that uh, I, apparently I reached out and said, it may be good to have a conversation, you know, being a, a, a recovering clinician myself. And when he was starting his path. And, and so that's how, how it began. I kind of became a mentor, uh, really. And it's continued right straight through. And as Yoda told Obi-Wan <laughs> when they both were on the other side of it, you know, there is a joyous pain of being a mentor is that pretty soon you sit there and you watch your mentees eclipse you, which is joyful. And uh, it, if it bothers you at all, you got some more work to do yourself. But for me, it's he's a really, really smart guy who cares. He's been all over this country at conferences and whatever. He will go anywhere to talk to people. He'll go anywhere to talk to pharmacists. Yeah, And he's done that. And and frankly, as we all know, I worked in a hospital system for a long time, is that the doctors don't know much about medicine. My first call was always to, to Colleen, who was the chief pharmacist in the hospital, because she knew everything about the meds. And when we got into the opiates and the buprenorphine, I know we were involved in, in the groundwork of the buprenorphine stuff. Uh, it just became, he became a, a ter- tremendous resource. And I just, I, I really would check in all of the time just to see where he's been, what continent he's been on, talking about what he knows. And 
So he has this indigofatable kind of energy to just go kind of like the other guy I'm looking at on the screen. You do, we do what we do because the work me- is meaningful to us at a very deep level, yeah. but also there's so much of it. There's so much need for it. So that's how I recall it kind of, and it's just evolved into this wonderful friendship now. So, You know, what I find always fascinating, Pat, is that you have a story for everyone you've ever met. <laughs> and no, but I, uh, that's a tribute because sometimes I go like, the hell I meet Pat, huh? Let's <laughs> yeah. forget. Well, he had to remind me. Yeah. Just, you know, so, but, yeah. but you know, and the story kind of fell in the place. You know, at your, your ripe, ripe age of uh, what, 62, 63, we can understand the memory has been affecting you. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you get a pass. Hey, hey, well, you know, I will be 75 in, in March on St. Patrick's Day. So, I wasn't so. going to say that. I was just. I know. But hey, I'm just, it's uh, as, as my guides have told me, it was, they had a hard time keeping me alive for a lot of that period of time. So, yeah, uh, it's again, every day is a blessing in, in the greatest uh, Buddhist senses that you wake up and what can I do today? And uh, I just would like to say that you somehow put this whole thing on my calendar, Steve. You sent me something, put it on my calendar. I don't know anything about this. All I had to do when I brought it up, sorry, one on my calendar, I went and it popped right into this. I am getting so good so, at this podcasting. It's unbelievable. I tell you, I'm in your mind. I'm in your email. I'm everywhere. Yeah. It's just it's everywhere. You are amazing. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But I'm uh, yeah, so I am honored to to be witness. As I said, I it was a selfish thing to be a part of this is that I get to hear the podcast first. You know, I, li- I like to think that despite the book being out for a couple of days now, I will be one of the first interviews and I take that as a great honor. So I do appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, it's an honor, my honor. You know, Pat has always been open about his treatment mm-hmm. stuff. He's been in treatment yeah. several times. He's shared that on the podcast, but I want to ask you, Jay, cause this is a standard question because it's finding your way through therapy, right? So, sure. Have you ever been in treatment? I'm assuming so, but let's talk about it, basically. Yeah, therapy was a a part of my life very early on. I I started struggling with depression and anxiety, 17, 18. And again, it was no surprise to my family, very long and very deep roots in our family with behavioral health issues and addiction issues. And I saw a therapist very early on, early through college and, and for many years and was medicated at the time. And then as that age tends to evolve and and you think you're indestructible and my substance use takes off. I kind of got away from it. And it wasn't until I went into treatment in in 2010 where therapy became a cornerstone, really the foundation of my recovery um, when I met Pat. And and just to tell you how it it happened, I had a family friend who was uh, in treatment, who was a patient of Pat's and he had mentioned to Pat that, you know, he had a friend who was struggling and looking for help and as Pat said, it's not something he normally did, but one day my phone rang and it was this guy who just introduced himself as a, a therapist at our local hospital here in Natick. And he said, I heard you need some help and you'd love to come see me. I'd be happy to chat with you. And I said, well, I don't have any money right now. I'm really not interested in therapy. He says, I don't want your money. I just, you know, let's come and have a chat. And and that really kind of kicked things off between us. I mean, putting aside his personal experiences, because that's not something he shared with me early on. We just clicked. Pat is, I've always called Pat my Yoda of recovery, as he he kind of alluded to. And to call him a therapist doesn't quite do it justice. He's a guide. And the most effective thing about Pat in, in my experience has been his ability to listen, his ability to process and, and to get you to kind of arrive at those conclusions and 
do the work that you have to do to get where you need to be. And the, the book is a great example of that. His guidance with this, especially early on, was a huge part of it. So I'm jaded when it comes to addiction and substance use treatment. I think everybody should at least be evaluated and participate in therapy early on because we all have issues. We all have things that contribute to our substance use and perpetuate it. It, it's one of those things that kind of makes my skin crawl when I, I hear a clinician say, well, I don't think the patient needs therapy or I haven't approached that discussion with the patient. It just, I feel we're doing them a, a disservice if at least we don't offer that and explore it. Well, if you ask me, there's a couple of things. We all need therapy. We don't all need weekly therapy, but we all need therapy. That's one of my views of therapy. Number two, I think we're all addicted to something. I think uh, we have behavioral addiction. Some people say some addictions are good, like working out and stuff like that. In my opinion, sometimes that can also be abusive and detrimental to you. So there's no such thing as someone. And that's my own theory that we're all addicted to something. Some of it a little better than others, obviously. But want to make sure that we're on the same page on that. If I find it also interesting when I hear clinicians like, oh, I didn't screen them for substance use. Why? I scream everyone for substance use, whether they say it or not. I don't care. You start there. It's I've taught a generation of, of students and whatever, and say it every day is that you start the one thing that'll explain everything when you're dealing with someone the first time. You rule that out because the one thing that'll explain everything is some kind of substance use. There is no men- mental illness. It's substance use and it, the sequelae of it for nutrition, sleep de- deprivation. It can't mimic. It mimics virtually every psychiatric disorder, personality and organic. So you start there. And it's remarkable just how much people seek, like Jake did, and many of us, is you seek medication. The first time you use a drug that will, will eventually become a problem, it seems like magic. Well, this stuff, this is amazing. Well, you know, the old, if it seems too good to be true, it is. But it's, I think it really is important to, when, when I was trained in a system that, chemical dependency program, treatment program, where two diagnoses were given. And this was part of the mentor that I had. Um, You started out with some kind of substance use disorder or polysubstance use or something, and then unresolved grief. Mm -hmm. And because it's all grief work, is that you postpone, you know, even even the healthy addictions, quote unquote, uh, the healthy addictions that working out and stuff, ultra marathoners, I ran a marathon yesterday, I'm going to do 50 more starting tomorrow. And well, that's going to be a distraction from something. That's the Forrest Gump syndrome. You know, run, Forrest, run. Well, eventually he had to, he stopped running and went back and grieved Jenny. That's what we do. And as I've said this many times, probably every podcast, Steve, is that we're not supposed to put the bumper sticker on the car that says, take my advice. I'm not using it. Yeah, right. You know, so everybody, I know everybody here is authentic and that we believe in our what we do, and we, we've also seen the benefits of it, which I think gives us authenticity if we're taking your own advice. We know what it's like. You know, I, I bought several mm-hmm. copies of Steve's book, and it was, it's just, it's a perfect read because it's, 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 a, it's a nugget. You can pick it up at any time. You can bounce around, and it, it has all those little pieces of wisdom, kind of like Living Sober, that famous book in AA, which just has all of the nuts and bolts that people need. When they're contemplating this process, it really demystifies it. And it's not an easy thing to demystify. So, yeah. And the, there's a couple of things because I want to talk about your book, but one of the things I want to tap into the pharmacist in you because 
from my perspective, when my clients ask me questions in regards to substances or even like mental health, having a medication, I'm like, there's pros and cons. If you think this is going to be your savior, that this is going to be what saves you because you're taking medication, then I don't recommend medication. Yeah, agreed. And I don't know how you approach it, Jake, but I wanted to hear your your view. I know I obviously want to hear Pat's view, but start with you, Jake, because I, I see it as therapy when medication works. Medication only doesn't work. Therapy sometimes can work on its own, but medication can help the process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think my views have evolved on it. I, I mean, coming out of pharmacy school where you're you're taught there's a medication for every sort of ailment, whether it's behavioral or medical, you know, kind of sets you sets the stage for your opinions on medication treatment. And, and again, as time has gone on in my own personal experiences is, and primarily working in the behavioral and addiction field, it's a tool. It's a tool just like many other tools we have in our toolbox. And one of the things that frustrates me for clinicians in this field is that it, it seems like we almost have siloed approaches. People like you kind of laid out, Steve, may just solely believe in therapy or one approach to treatment or, where others just solely use medication which rarely, rarely works. So again, I've, I've really evolved my views on that. As you said very, very well, there are pros and cons to medications. Medications alter the body. And most of the time that's for the positive, for a therapeutic effect we're seeking, but there are drawbacks. There are side effects to every medication. Medications don't always work, especially when we're talking about behavioral health medications. So we may have to cycle through multiple ones to, to find ones that work for us. So anytime I'm talking to a, a parent, a patient, um, especially I try to set expectations around that, that it's a tool. And without you doing the work and seeking the guidance of those that have been down the path before us or have engaged with, with multiple folks like us that have struggled, the likelihood of you being successful in the end is, is reduced. Right. I like how you put that. But I want to turn to Pat and hear your opinion on that, because I think that we're on the same page, obviously. So, Well, certainly in the addiction field, the dual diagnosis field, it's been controversial because a lot of mislabeling where benzodiazepines and other sedative hypnotic drugs have been labeled antidepressants, and they can have a, an addiction, addictive history as well. The, the thing that I have been... To this day, you know, I've been at this 30-some odd years, and to this day is that the people that pull the prescription pad out and write the medication don't really know what it's doing. They get their information from companies or from colleagues or whatever, but it's since we know barely 20% of how the brain actually works, and most of these treat brain in some way, I do a lot of research myself, and I try to explain patients. And, it's rare that I find a patient that has actually heard this before when I say, well, you know, an SSRI like Prozac or Zoloft or Lexapro or whatever, commonly used, prescribed by a lot of um, internists and OBGYNs and whatever, people who do, do internal medicine essentially, uh, very commonly done, and they have a good effect on a lot of things. But uh, they're, they're, as Jake said, they're not a cure-all. And what what I basically tell people, this is something that if it works for you, it makes you available for the treatment. It's not a cure right. for it. It'd be nice to just take a pill, but what, what an SSRI does is it slows down a hypervigilant response a little bit, and it encourages your body to make serotonin in the gut, and so that it balances out what you have in your brain, which is a norepinephrine and serotonin imbalance. 
the norepinephrine is winning, and that is the brain's adrenaline. So you're hypervigilant and everything. And the other piece is I always work on sleep and nutrition because those things contribute to it and can actually be the cause of it. And people who are anxious and depressed and whatever often don't eat. I had one fellow once that was fairly newly sober, and uh, he did get sober, but he was a contractor. And he, I saw him after a treatment, and he was uh, pretty stable. And I saw him three or four weeks later after he had gone back into work. And he was like the most manic person I've ever seen. You know, he couldn't even sit still. And, and so I just go right to the head. Do you say, well, I've been having a hard time. And so what do you eat every day? Basically, he rolled around in his truck and he had a whole bag of Reese's peanut butter cups and a case of Pepsi every day. Honest to God, I think, I, I think I'd die. If that, but that was what, so he was jacked on sugar and caffeine and whatever else is in all of that stuff. And he stopped doing that all stuff and he came back in as a, as a much more grounded, sentient person. And turns out that then the medication that they, some SSRI, actually helped him. And he became available for about two years of really in-depth family of origin stuff. You know, that was the, the typical stuff we see so often. You grow up in a very dysfunctional right. home and it, and you get a very confused start to life and your orientation to, to adult living. And so, but I really wanted people, if they're going to take a medication, to know what it does and what the nutritional requirements are for it. And again, I'll just, I've said this before, is that there's a one psychiatrist that knows a lot about this. And they get curious about it. His name is Jim Greenblatt. I bet Jake's met him. And he's an integrative uh, guy. He's trying to re redefine how psychiatry is. And he's training a whole new generation of psychiatrists about what actually we're doing. And so Jake is one of those pioneers in this field now. I've been trying to explain it to people, but I didn't know much about it. But now we get the science behind it as well. And this whole new generation of pharmacists and physicians and prescribers is going to actually start to treat the underlying disorder, I think, as, as, as we get refined and not be treating symptoms. We've all been treating symptoms. That's what using alcohol for grief does. It treats symptoms. You, know? you, can, you, can, you can treat a broken leg with morphine. It works about 10 minutes. And you, you, still, can't, you still fall down if you get up. So, you know, anyway. I still think about you know, why do we take like the pain medication? I still don't comprehend that we got to orally take something for my knee. I just don't get it. And that's just my view of the pharmaceutical world that like, if my knee's hurting, there should be something that concentrates on my knee. Not that I'm going to take orally goes through across my body. And then like, yeah, of course, I don't even think about my knee at one point when I take those medications. But yeah, I, I do agree. Like the education of people, whether it's exercise, what's an SSRI? And the other thing, too, that, again, I'm going to throw it to both of you, and you can tell me what you think. I know that they can help with some symptomology, but the first six months of sobriety, I go, like, let's chill about your symptoms because th these are your symptoms based on recovery, not your symptoms of whatever might be the mental health issue behind it. But I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, too, and, and that's something I it's something to remind clinicians about. Again, I, I've been very appreciative about how many general practitioners have gotten on board and, and seen it as their duty to treat patients that are struggling with substance use, but they're not necessarily psychiatrists. They're not necessarily trained in the behavioral health side of things. And as you, you both have alluded to, when somebody comes into treatment, and Pat said it really well, it, it's really hard to tease out, is this an issue of substance use or is this an mm -hmm. issue of behavioral health that's been untreated or poorly treated? And I think until we can we can get some time in recovery and get some time away from those substances that we've been using, it's impossible 
to be able to tease that out and to be able to kind of focus on those things. So it's something I frequently remind clinicians about and, and really encourage them to get behavioralists in the mix ASAP. Right. It's the uh, having been one of the people that started this. Well, I was invited into it. I didn't start it, but the uh, first dual diagnosis task force in Metro West. We had a lot of training by a wonderful uh, psychiatrist, David Mealy, and he was a dual diagnosis uh, guru. And he, yeah, he still I still see him. I've, I've seen good conferences of his because he he really explains it well. But he always said, and it's the standard thing: is you have whatever it is, you have to treat the substance use first. You start there because, and one of the people that you both know that is retired, unfortunately, um, my friend Mary, Dr. Mary Mullaney, she once asked me, she said, Pat, how long do you think it takes someone in, in their complete cl- continuous clean and sober recovery before you can do a psychiatric workup on that? And I said, at least six months. It takes that long for the brain to settle down. And it's like when the, you have a storm and then the wind comes the next day. Well, that, the wind is a side effect of this of the storm. And then we need to let the wind subside before you can rake the leaves and sort things out. So it's, this is, it's nice to see this getting into the mainstream addiction field. So let's treat the addiction first. And the last thing that a lot of people need early, even if they have dual diagnosis symptoms, is a lot more heavy medication. I worked in detoxes and I worked in psych units, and it all looks the same for about three or four days. Everyone's walking around in a semi-stupor, and then things start to shift out in different dimensions or, or arenas or silos, as Jake said. So uh, this is really encouraging that, that, that this is starting to really happen the way I always hoped, where that we, we start to explain what's actually going on to the patients. You want to make the patient the, the best customer they can be. I always like your approach, Pat, because I think that that's what all three of us have in common. And I think that this is the next generation mm-hmm. is that down the earth, straightforward type of work. And I want to give you credit and props for that, because I think that's what people are going to respond. Gone are the days where the therapist wears a suit and tie and knows everything. Gone are the days where the pharmacist stands 15 feet above everyone. And goes, <laughs> I know everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's the good stuff that you just talked about. And I always think about when you say addiction recovery, I if there's a loved one, if they have, they still have loved ones because someone, sometimes they don't, but if they have a partner, a family member, whoever it is, I say, can I meet them after two or three sessions? Because I tell them, I'm like, mm-hmm. if you think they're going to be better next week or next month, you're sadly mm-hmm. mistaken. You're going to have to wait for about six months before they start kind of like the fog starts lifting for real. Mm-hmm. And I think that educating the family on that is so important because a lot of families, well, you've been sober for two months. Why are you still in bed? Because I had an addiction for 10 years, so my brain's still a little screwed up. But I, I, I think depleted. that that's, the brain is often depleted. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and I think that's one of aspect of recovery that I really like is to talk about the, to family members or friends or neighbors mm-hmm. or whoever they want it because to explain that. But, you know, I'm going to throw this to Jake. What other aspects of recovery are important to help people achieve the long-term recovery they want? Yeah. I mean, without question, and and this is a big theme in the book, is support network. I've been very lucky to have an incredible support network from the get-go. It truly is what makes all the difference. And also being a scientist, a healthcare provider at heart, you know, when I I, I entered recovery, I started doing kind of an informal study of of talking to people Mm -hmm. who had achieved recovery and seeing what the common threads were. And there, there were two in my mind. One is that they 
acknowledged the work that was ahead of them and they put their head down and they went at it and did the work that was necessary to get there. And, and two, just as important was their support network. And that goes beyond clinicians. The clinicians are, are an essential part of it, especially at the beginning. But having a group of folks around you that A, you can turn to when you're struggling and you feel comfortable having those conversations with them, but just as importantly, having a group of people that will call you out when they suspect something. And, and I don't want to use the word suspect, but, you know, something is off. Something is going on. You know, are you okay? I'm concerned. You know, what can I do to help? And being comfortable with that, that group to be able to say, okay, yeah, I am struggling. When, and here's what's going on. So to me, that that is, you know, an absolutely essential part of it. And, you know, if I could add one more piece to that, it's it's service. You know, I think we're all, I want to say required, but I think it's incumbent upon us to share our strength, hope, and love, as we like to say, and show others that it is possible to beat this, um, that it is possible to thrive, it's possible to come back from this, it's possible to be fulfilled professionally and personally. And, and again, it seems like it's impossible at the beginning. And again, being a clinician, I can understand that. Having gone through it, I can understand it. Your brain is telling you it's impossible. You know, your brain has been rewired to tell you, you can't do this, but that will heal in time, as Pat said, and you can do this. And when you do, the sense of accomplishment that you have without becoming complacent by any means is something that is just indescribable. We hear a lot of people and it's the early step work, the in-depth middle step work um, is about self-forgiveness. Because uh, what keeps the addiction going is, is negative feelings about self, and then you and that creates the more power to the dissociative aspects of, of substance use. It's a misnomer to say I hate myself. A self is spirit. You can't hate the spiritual core, your heart. What we hate is our behavior. That's why the field's called behavioral health. And we say, you know, you change the behavior first, and the rest of it starts to follow. But you have complete control over behavior. And your opinion of yourself changes with time. And sometimes that is the mental illness, if you will, the way people feel. It feels toxic. Well, they are toxic for a while, but they have a toxic opinion of themselves based upon smart people doing the same things over and over again that they promised themselves they wouldn't do. It's the most unsafe place there is. So that's the, the thing about recovery programs and every spiritual program whether you're a Buddhist or whatever, has selfless service in it. That whole concept of doing for others is how you get out of your own head and it feeds the heart. And that's the source of love and whatever you want to call the energy that keeps the universe going. Love is a good, as good a name as anything, a label. But that, that's part of it. And it also allows you to know you're not alone. Right. And it's amazing to see someone in early recovery. I've told many people, if you are one week sober, you're much more relevant to the guy that's three hours sober than I am because he wants to know what the next six days are going to look like, not what the next 30 years are going to look like or whatever. So you can be right in that uh, very, very soon. So I think that's a really important point, Jake, the, the service aspect of it. And I think that what I liked also what you said, Pat, is that self the, the service doesn't have to be in a typical 12-step model. You can serve no. in different ways. And I think that that's what I really like in what you just said. It, it feeds the soul. It feeds the heart. And it's to just go, you know, go volunteer someplace. Or the, the random act of kindness. 
whatever it is. You see it on street corners every day. It's not what they put on the, in the newspapers. But you, if you sit and observe, you'll see people being gentle and kind and nice and helpful to, to other people. More so. It used to be more mainstream, I think. But it's coming back. It's making a comeback. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, a few weeks ago, I put, a, I, I put this on my uh, social media. The opposite of self-hate is not self-love. It's self-acceptance. And learning to accept oneself. I think love is important, obviously. I'm not saying it's not important, but we tend to run from one end to the another. I think the only one end to another is sobriety. <laughs> sobriety is not like a middle ground type thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that learning to accept ourselves, you said self-forgiveness. I want to add self-acceptance because mm-hmm. it is what it is. I did what I did. I only have today. Again, very Buddhist mm-hmm. thought process. I get it, but that's how I perceive it. I don't know what you think, Jake, but... Yeah, that's exactly the way I feel. And, and you know, the other thing to keep in mind, it's a perpetual process. You don't reach a point where you I've forgiven myself. I've accepted myself. Mm-hmm. There are days where I struggle with some of the, that toxicity, as Pat said, and, and some of the things and those behaviors that I engaged in. And there are other days where it's much easier to move past it. But again, all we can do is continue to work on it and try to make amends when we can and keep bettering ourselves. And I think that what I would continue talking about here is there's other factors that help us stay sober. And I, I know I saw a few things in your book in regards to that. You talked about a little bit of having people around you. That's very important. Do you think about other factors that might be important for people to have around them? Yeah. Again, I think a sense of, or being able to self-reflect on a regular basis. You know, you, you hear this a lot again in, in 12 step and to be clear, I'm not a, a diehard 12-step guy, and it was very useful to me. But and I've, as we we say, I've kind of taken what I've needed and and left the rest. And um, but one of the things I got from that was the first thing I do every morning is wake up and I reflect on where I'm at. Um, I remind myself where I've come from. I assess how I am that day and define what I need to do to stay on that path. And that could be anything from being with my kids to traveling somewhere and and discussing my own experiences or just talking to somebody that's struggling. It could be a variety of different things. But one of the things I talk about when I speak more so um, and a little bit in the book is, you know, developing your own recovery recipe. Recovery is not a one size fits all process. Um, And that's just as important of of a statement to clinicians as it is to patients, to families. And like you said, Steve, you know, the fact that, you know, in two weeks, you're not going to be just up and running and everything is going to be great after you enter treatment. It's a long-term process and and everybody is able to, to, I guess, achieve certain milestones at different times. So, you know, I've developed my own recovery recipe over the years, which involves the service aspect. It involves working in the field. It involves keeping myself open and accessible to others that may want to seek me out for advice or guidance. And for me, there are other more personal aspects too, to, you know, basically staying true to myself. One of the things that, you know, was very pervasive in my substance use history was lying and dishonesty. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that I promised myself early on that I would leave behind. So adhering to that, no matter how painful it may be, is really a personal marker for me as to how well I'm doing, you know, in my recovery, how easily I'm able to do that. So you know, there's a lot of pieces to it. And again, it's very individualized. It's very personalized. But 
again, every day is a process where I wake up and I define what pieces of that recipe I need today. Stay on that path. What about you, Pat? Yeah, I, I would agree. The The early morning, I, I, I interview people all of the time because I do a lot of evaluations. And, and people, I, I, a full immersion in 12-step recovery works for some people. It doesn't really work for others. I, it's always a smorgasbord. <laughs> smorgasbord, it's hard. It's a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're up early, Pat. I'm pig. not. This is early. Yeah. I'm supposed to be the one having trouble talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, folks. But it's, uh, it's that buffet aspect and some of it, you know, well, I don't like these and I don't like that. I'm allergic to this. And to take what works and, you know, the proof of the pudding is, is that if you are uh, experience yourself in a more positive way, that your opinion of yourself starts to shift and the opinion of others around you reflects that. The people we put in our network are the, are the mirrors in which we see ourselves more clearly. And recovery people, we we don't really confront people. We care for people. Right. And we come from a place of not judging them because we've been there. We've done it. So we come from a place of saying, oh, just for nothing, when, you seem to be a little off today. And, and if someone gets defensive, he said, you know, you seem a little defensive. We just speak to the behavior, but in, in an authentic way. Um, but the rituals vary. I really love hearing the rituals that people do, the literature that they read in the morning, meditate, all of these different things that we do. And the one piece I would add, and I know that uh, certainly Jake has been this because I used to see him most frequently at the gym, is that he's one of those guys that picks things up that are heavy and puts them down a lot. But the, the platform for addiction is a physiology of the body. It's a, it's a central nervous system that is physical and it is uh, electrochemical, you know, Thoughts are electricity, emotions and everything else are, are magnetic. That's how, how we operate. And the physical body needs to be addressed. And often it didn't used to be addressed enough. And that, you know, you really have to, you have a lot of restless energy in early recovery that can depress you or basically exhaust you. In working the body in, in, a, in an important way is, is very useful. I probably have said this before, but there was a, legendary old timer that ran a drop-in center in downtown Framingham. And he said, addicts and alcoholics need to walk. He says, the angels talk to you when you walk. And it's just like Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, walking meditation. He said, when your legs are tired, what was bothering you in your mind is not as important. That sometimes the energy, the restless energy of the body goes up into the, forgive me, the itty bitty shitty committee. We have races around there, and, and that alters our perception of ourselves. And so when you get like that, um, we have people that we reflect upon. There's two in this room. I could call up and say, this is it. And they go, well, geez, Pat, that seems a little heavy thought of this. And what was it? Um, I say this all the time. Einstein said, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. So we need colleagues. We need uh, people that can be an objective expert on us in that moment in time when we can't be. And so one thing that recovery programs teach people right from day one is to basically seek that. I think the Buddha once said that the, the most precious resource a person can have is someone that will tell them the truth. It's, it's a re resource you're supposed to guard with, with all your being. Yeah. And I, I think it, just a, a kind of an ad there that, you know, the gym for me was it checked multiple boxes. Yeah. You know, it was the exercise piece. You know, the restless energy is the first reason I went. But then I go and Pat's there 
And there's there was a core group of five guys there that have become my primary support network mm-hmm. 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that social aspect to it as well. And that became a huge, huge part of, of my early recovery and my my continued recovery for that matter. COVID closed it down. I really missed I missed the guys. I missed it was a, a Saturday afternoon. It was like an AA meeting there, frankly. You know, it was yeah. yeah. A lot of us. I moved yeah. six years ago from uh, where I used to live, and I went to the gym over there. Six years later, people still go like, "Hey, you're not coming to our gym anymore." Oh, I moved. I got something closer, and they still remember you. And there's a camaraderie yeah. that you don't get yeah. somewhere else. And yeah, then I just want to go. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go too far down in the Buddhist thought process, but one of my favorite quotes of Thich Nhat Hanh is, "The way out is in." Mm-hmm. And when you're doing mm-hmm. the sobriety stuff and you're past that six month mark, I say, look, you, you're not going to solve it out here. You're going to solve it in here. So that's how you're going to mm-hmm. get out of it. And just wanted mm-hmm. to throw that out. And the other thing that I also remind people, and this is, I've said this on the podcast and maybe you heard it, Jake. And if you haven't, I had someone who's had trouble staying sober and he liked, he saw a little wooden boot on my, on my desk. And he's like, What's that? I said, it's the Buddha. He's like, can I have it? I said, it's going to keep you sober. He's like, yeah. And he kept him sober for the time I saw him. I don't know where he is today, mm-hmm. but you know, like we can't like, I, I, I'm okay with 12 steps. I'm not a 12 step guy, but I'm okay with, I'm okay with a wooden Buddha. I'm okay with whatever works as long as your sobriety is maintained. So having that plan that you talked about is so key. And I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I wanted to really uh, address is that, I don't, there's, that's not a competition, obviously, but you know, we've all had an addiction issue at some point in time, all three of us working in this field has helped me tremendously to understand even my own self. I'm not doing it for that reason, but it also helps. I want to go to first to you, Jake, how is working in this field helped you get through your own addiction stuff and dealing with your own recovery? Yeah, I think that there's two aspects of that. It's a great question, Steve. It's one I'm asked actually a lot. The first is is almost kind of like the the reflection you get when you first go to meetings if if you're into the twelve step thing. It normalizes what you went through to some degree. And and for me, being a pharmacist, being somebody who was well respected in the profession and well known, you know, when when my issues came to light, I felt like I was the lowest form of low. There were people that would openly tell me that I had betrayed them. I had betrayed my profession. I betrayed the public trust. You think you're biggest piece of shit, pardon my language, on the face of the earth. And, you know, it's not so much, as you said, a competition, but you go in and you talk to other folks that have struggled and you hear the hells that they have been through over and over again. And you see how they've moved past that. And it almost gives you strength to say, my God, if they were able to overcome that, I can certainly overcome my issues and move forward. And, and you, you glean bits of wisdom from each one of those interactions. So first and foremost, it's engaging with other people that have been down the same road. And it's hearing how they've been able to not only achieve recovery, but maintain it. And that's, again, one of the big themes of my book is everything you need to be successful here and get past your own issues, whether it's addiction or other struggles, is out there. You just need to talk to people. You just need to read. You just need to do the work. Because my recovery and my recovery recipe is an amalgam of all the wisdom I've pulled from all the people that I've interacted with over the past 12 years. 
And it's it's almost like this big pile of mud where I'm continuously just throwing pieces at it to make it bigger. And that's something I'll do literally until the day I die. So that's a big part of it. The other part of it is to see the progression of how we're doing in this field. And that's a big part of how much of a resource I can be. Like Pat said, you know, in the short time I've been working in this field, I've seen a lot of changes for the better. Mm -hmm. Again, as we talked about, kind of looking at the whole patient approach. It's not just medication. It's not just therapy. It is the social determinants of health that we need to address. It's the nutrition. It's the spirituality. It's whatever it is that we need to look at on the whole to get this person to a place where they're able to do that work on their own, be comfortable with it. The attitude around the use of medications. You know, when we talk about opioid use disorder, again, when I started working in this field 12 years ago, there were there were literally two camps. There were the abstinence guys and there were the people that believed in MAT or medication for addiction treatment. Now we've come together and kind of found a lot of common ground. Again, I'm, I'm all for whatever approach works, get you there. But the fact that we have medications that will keep people alive and prevent people from dying and we're not using them especially early on, is mind-baffling to me as a clinician. But I've seen a lot of acceptance of that. The use of harm reduction, the the use of, of all these other strategies to meet people where they're at. And that's also been an evolution on my part. If you asked me 12 mm-hmm. years ago what I thought about having a safe injection facility or putting Narcan or Naloxone into the hands of everybody, I would say, no, that's that's enabling drug use. That's crazy. Why would we even consider that? The numbers speak for themselves. We haven't made much traction in the time that I've been working in this field, and it looks like it's going to continue to get worse. We need to do that. So again, long story short, it's really keeping my finger on the pulse of things. And again, that bolsters my recovery because it tells me there's hope. There's a lot of those attitudes and that negativity I saw early on towards people that are struggling with substance use has dissipated and, and stigma has been reduced. We still got a long way to go, but we've made some great progress. And I think the other thing, before I ask Pat to go on, I'm, I, to me, like the education piece is so important because 20 years ago, you told me what I thought about MAT. I was in the camp of sobriety. Yeah. And when I got into MAT, I'm like, okay, MAT works. And then I realized I don't have to choose a camp. And being able to say, well, the other thing too, that I always remind myself is that when I consult with Pat or I consult with, I haven't yet Jake, but I feel we're going to consult when I don't like, I know something. And then Jake says, blah, 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 about something I don't know. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And getting that openness instead of saying, no, this is my camp is always going to be key also in recovery for a whole lot of people. But that's just me. I agree with Jake. In the beginning, most of us, especially the 12 step you know, which was an important part of my uh, evolution initially, especially, but it was black and white thinking in there. And I think what changed that game is opioids. Is when the synthetics came out and Oxycontin hit in, in, in the days where heroin, had, you could live for 50 years as a heroin addict because it wasn't a lot. If you didn't get cellulitis or something else, something systemic or like that, because overdose was rare. You can't treat someone as dead. And I've watched hundreds of young people die. And that's what opens you to anything. Let's keep them going, meet them halfway, keep them alive long enough. And that's the whole goal. It's literally why there's food and AA meetings. The food was to keep the street alcoholics alive 
and a warm place and a cup of coffee. They didn't matter if you were drunk or whatever. As long as you were quiet, you could sit there and they'd feed you because you can't help someone. And the key with the spiritual aspect of it is that we have a, a, a false opinion of ourselves based upon this behavior and a, a, the distorted thinking and the distorted the toxicity of the body. And it takes a while for that to, to come around. And most of the people that I've worked with that started out with harm reduction or the MAT, they eventually want to be free from it because they've outlived its usefulness. It's just, it's not working anymore. They don't need it. So eventually, I think that there's a, a motive, and they will only get better at uh, the, the, the interventions to, you know, even if they're medical or whatever. You know, you know we're, they're dealing with magnetic therapy for brain now and, and mood disorder and everything. And I'm doing some quantum healing study about, about that, which is all frequency and dealing with the, the resonance of the body that helps part of the facilitate the healing process. So, gosh, we're only going to... All right, Pat. Pat is throwing yeah. stuff around. Just give it's me a, a second. It's a, yeah, it's 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 it's. A, 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 if I broke an arm, it'd be a speech impediment. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, but we're only going to get better at this. And I have become a pragmatic person like that. There's a heartbeat. There's hope, and what we do in this whole the whole field, including the reco- community recovery, is that we try to light the pilot light. We share experience, strength, and hope. And we've all, what hooks me and keeps me going to this day is seeing the light come back on in someone's eyes. I was with having lunch yesterday with someone that is five or six years sober that was a, someone I knew, a, a relative of a colleague, and I, I was helpful in the beginning. And to see that, that the life and vitality, and, and of course, she wants to get into the field now. It's just the way it is because it's of what they've learned. But it's a, it's a question of, how do we serve our patients well? And I think that we have to keep learning as well because it is a dynamic, fluid process where the, the information is, is coming at us very quickly. And in Jake's career, they're going to unlock brain. In my career, they unlock the human genome and a few other things. But they will get to the bottom of this. And I'll say one last thing about it is that we, we waste no information. And we walk on the bones of those who didn't make it. And we, we, we figure out what they did that didn't work. And we try to eliminate it. And we then mine, just like we're doing here, we share the resources that have worked for us as individuals and what we've seen in our patients. And we share that with anybody who has an interest and wants to know this information. It's just a body. It's a compendium of knowledge that has had a high cost. And we, we're not supposed to waste it. And that's what keeps us going. The other thing, too, is not only are we going to unlock the brain, we're going to figure out how our gut has a lot more to do with addiction. Probably not in my lifetime, but hopefully in yours, Jake. Yeah. You know, I've been to some conferences that have been enlightening about the gut brain. You know, and I said, I've said this before, but still a statistic that startled me and got my attention was is that there are many neurons in your gut as there are in the spinal cord. Mm hmm. So we all know the gut reactions and, and, and all of that, but, you know, they've figured out pretty much how the communication, you know, so we are a, a complete being and it's only going to go forward from here. I am incredibly hopeful, relentlessly hopeful about this. And uh, that's what keeps me going and, and watching it in others as well. You know, might be a good question for you, Jake. I'll tell you what keeps me going, uh, Pat, is what I know in life. When I was 24, 20- 20, I knew everything. 25, I kind of knew some things. 
now what I know fits in the thimble in this size room. That's what keeps me going. That's what keeps me learning. I do get entrenched sometimes and it pushes me to think differently. So I really appreciate that. But what about you, Jake? What, what, you know, we just talked about how we learn different things. I think it's two things for me. I mean, Pat said it best. It's, you know, when you provide some guidance to somebody and you see that light come on at some point and you hear the successful, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I do a lot of facilitating a parent support groups of a group called learn to cope here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing group of people. Great group. Um, And I hadn't spoken in a while. I spoke uh, a few weeks ago and uh, there was a woman on who, who came on and, and after I finished said, you know, I, I don't know if you remember me, but I asked you to meet my son for lunch about six years ago. And I have a vague memory of it. I remember it was in Worcester. I remember where we met. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. How's he doing? She said, well, he's, he's been in recovery for about six years now, five years now. And I get very emotional. Didn't expect that, but I got very emotional because, and Pat and I have talked about this a lot, sometimes you wonder if you're getting through. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you you really want somebody, and I, I'm not there to give advice. Again, I, I, I take it as Pat takes it. I'm there to, to provide my experience and what's worked for me and you tell me your situation i'll make some suggestions if you want to take it great but to hear that somebody did do that and has been able to achieve that was unexpectedly emotional for me so that's a big part of it the the second part of it for me is i still have a lot of work to do and whether this is right or wrong i left a tremendous path of destruction in my wake financially relationship wise i have a lot of catching up to do and and that's primarily for my kids. I have two boys, 10 and 13, amazing, amazing kids that are the cornerstone of what keeps me on this path. And there's a lot I want to do for them that I wasn't able to do as a, as a kid and that I feel that they deserve because they're good kids. They work hard. They have an incredible mother and she definitely keeps them more on the straight and narrow path than I do. And, but it's a, a very good dynamic, a very good balance. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I, I still feel like I have a lot of work to do. And I can't tell you a day since I've I've entered recovery where I've got up and I've questioned whether or not I want to stay on this path and, and continue mm-hmm. to do these things. Mm-hmm. And I know you talk about your family in the book. So how about you share more a little bit about your book? Where can we find it and stuff like that? Because again, having a conversation with Pat an hour goes by really, really fast. <laughs> and I just realized that we're getting close to that. So I want to really like kind of like hear more about your book. Where can we find it and stuff like mm-hmm. that? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing is that the book is is really a, almost a 10-year process. I said it was two, and, and that's what it took me to actually write it. But just a quick story, uh, you know, I was very early in my recovery, and I had taken a job at the pharmaceutical company where I was traveling a lot. And sitting on planes, I said, you know, I need to put some of this on paper. And, you know, I, I was in what they refer to as the pink cloud phase where I was, you know, I had some traction in my recovery. I was very, I wanted to share everything with the world. And I mean, I literally banged out 50 pages of Microsoft Word document just from flights. And I went in and I sat down with Pat because this is when I was seeing him regularly in, in my early treatment. And I was telling him about this and he let me go and he finished. And he said, look, if there's one thing that you ever listen to me about, I, I ask it to be this. I said, what's that? He says, wait until you have 10 years under your belt to finish this book. And I said, I began to question why. And he said, you'll understand when you get there. And I can't say how much that was true. You know, I had an unfortunate series of events in late 2020, lost my job, ended a long-term relationship, engagement. Um, we're in the middle of COVID. And I just kind of reflected and said, now's the time. 
and you know, ten years had passed, and I, I just was in a place where it was just felt so right to to really start this process again. And it started as a ser- really a, a self exploration. The how did I get here? You know, what was the series of events, and you know, what was predetermined, and you know, what was environment, and it, it really was a very selfish undertaking, if I could say that from the beginning. And it, it really evolved into something more than that. And it's certainly my my story, you know, from beginning to end and how those all those factors kind of contributed to it. But it also, from somebody on the outside looking into it, I hope that they can see that continuing to get up every time you fall is a big part of this. That support network is a very big part of this. And that life is hard. And, you know, ultimately, we do live in a world that's unfit for recovery, and we have to do the work to make sure we stay on that path and, and we keep ourselves fit for recovery. So it ended as, as kind of that. It ended as, you know, here's what I've done and, and here's what I've learned. And I, I hope some of you can take some of this away um, and apply it to your own situation. And again, regardless of whether it's addiction or any other struggle, you keep fighting, it will pay off. Um, it will. I need the. So the name of the book is Unfit for Recovery. What's the the, the rest of it? Is there like a little uh, thing, another tag under? It's living in a world that, uh, gosh, you had to ask me that. <laughs> you know, we, we, but I think it's on the cover. But yet, you know what? I like that. And there's, you know, I remember you telling me there's two meanings to unfit for recovery. So, yeah. Yeah. The first was, again, as I alluded to, you know, we ultimately live in a world that's unfit for recovery. But as I was going through this and the initial thought was, am I somebody who's fit for recovery? I began to think I was unfit for recovery because, you know, even after 10 years of continuous sobriety, I found myself in a situation where I was very close to returning to those behaviors. And it it made me start to question whether or not I had done the right things on that course to be able to maintain this. And it just hit me. It's fighting recovery in an unforgiving world. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but yeah. that was my goal here. This is not a this is not hard copy or anything like that. So, uh, where can we find the book? Because I think that that's going to be the important part. Because books you know, available on Amazon.com. It's in in also the uh, the Kindle uh, format as well. And I'll be doing an audio book hopefully within the next few months. So, and I'll be linking all that to the show notes so people can go to get get your book on Amazon. That would be great. Pat, anything you want to add? It's a, a lot, but I'll, I'll keep it short. <laughs> the, the one thing I can say is that we, in, in this field, our job is to remember that we teach most what we need to learn. And, you know, I've said many a time that we, we go to school to figure out how smart people like us can end up as distracted and distorted and off track as, as we became. And when, when Jake writes a book like this and shares his experience with all of that, it's great for him, but it also will resonate with others. And it also speaks clearly, I think, to, to how the climate around here on, on our world right now fosters more of the other side of the street rather than the recovery side of the street because of the, the kind of the culture of recovery is helpful to each other. It's that loving kindness that the Buddha talks about as opposed to dog eat dog and take a ride this morning on the Mass Pike. And there's, there's not a lot of love being shared. And that's kind of the, the culture, at least in Eastern Massachusetts. So 
hopefully these are the, the grassroots uh, moments where this sets a little fire and gets, gets its traction and inspires other people to their own recovery, but also just to be easier and gentler and taking care of themselves and helping others. That's the message we all have. It's, it's specifically, t- in this case, to behavioral health and addiction. But we as a culture, we as a society, we as a humanity have got to become more of a community, a helpful community. And, and I stay, again, relentlessly optimistic that that's going to happen. That There is a new consciousness emerging now because it needs to happen. We need to save save ourselves and save the planet and for, for future generations, for your grandchildren's children. But it starts here. It starts one person at a time. And with three, three people like this, that the connections are intimate, that we've known, you know, we know a lot about what we've done ourselves and how we've helped others. And we'll share it with anybody because it, there's, there's just so much need for it. And this book was, writing a book is no mean feat. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for it. And I'm always amazed when someone actually listens to me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I fought you. I fought you. I know. Yeah. Well, you know, the outstanding characteristic of that addiction is defiance. Yeah. That was determined years and years ago. And so you can channel that defiance into not doing the things that are harmful and the defiance. And I'm going to finish this damn book. I'm going to do it. I'm, and it, it gets to a fatigue factor about halfway through a book. And so... And you wrote, you wrote how many, 10, 10 times more pages than are in the book, probably? Yeah, yeah. It ended up so trimming I, down about 25,000 words from the original, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really, that's typical. So, But what, well done. I think we're going to all find out that the timing of this for the new year, uh, this new year particularly, is going to be really relevant. Yeah, So yeah, I hope so. And I'm going to finish on a couple of things. First of all, having written a book myself, the process of writing the book is the easy part, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree, Jake. Writing the stuff was easy. It's the other part that's hard. That's why I tell people. And then I want to piggyback on what Pat said, because one of the things that I remind myself and sometimes remind to clients, friends, or whatever, no one gets out of here alive. Might as well be nice to each other. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to live forever. No one's going to live forever. I've been told that's dark. I, I say I'm realistic. but. Right. Mm-hmm. So with you being alive right now, please go get Jake's book, Unfit for Recovery, out now on Amazon. I'm going to link it to the show notes. But thank you, Jake. And thank you, Pat, for being on the show. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Pat. Yeah, thank you, fellas. It's it's been an absolute pleasure and, and fun, as it always is. And we should do this again, maybe dinner sometime, sometime That's soon. That idea. would be fun. That would be fun. So. Thanks again for your skill, Steve, in doing all of this. You make it really easy to be a part of this. And I know that's not easy. I drop mic right now. That's a compliment. I'm taking it. I'm running. <laughs> well, this concludes episode 82 of Finding Your Way Through Therapy. Jake Nichols, thanks so much. Go get his book, Unfit for Recovery, available at Amazon and other places. Please look at the link in the show notes. And Pat Rice, as usual, just a great contributor, and I know I'm going to have Pat back soon enough. Episode 83 will be with Amy Timer. Amy is someone I know personally because she is my business coach, and we're going to talk about that as much as we will talk about other stuff and all of her endeavors, so I'm looking forward to hearing that, so please join us then. Please like, subscribe, or follow this podcast on your favorite platform. A glowing review is always helpful. And as a reminder, this podcast is for information, educational, and entertainment purposes. 
If you are struggling with a mental health or substance abuse issue, please reach out to a professional counselor or therapist for consultation.